The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells Chapter 2 The Falling Star Hello and welcome to another edition of Public Domain Playhouse. We take the great works of literature from antiquity and turn it into a teleplay for your enjoyment. But since this is a cross between an ebook and a podcast to kind of keep up with the podcast portion of this show, we also like to go a little bit into history about the author or the situation or what's happening. And in the case of War of the Worlds, we can talk about when it was published in the late 1890s. Back then, it was common for novels prior to a full volume of publication to be published. They were serialized in magazines or newspapers. And each of these serialization endings resulted in a cliffhanger at the end of each one to entice the audiences to buy the next edition. It's a practice that was familiar from the first publication of Charles Dickens's novels early in the 19th century. The War of the Worlds, though, was published in a serial form in Pearson's magazine in April through December in 1897. Wells was paid 200 pounds, and Pearson's demanded to know the ending of the piece before they actually committed to publish it. The complete volume was published by William Heinemann in 1898, and it's been in print ever since. Two unauthorized serializations of note for uh, War of the Worlds were published in the United States prior to the publication of the novel. The first was published in the New York Evening Journal between December 1897 and January 1898. The story was published as Fighters from Mars, or The War of the Worlds. It changed the location of the story to a New York setting. The second version changed the story to have Martians landing in an area near or around Boston, and was published by the Boston Post in 1898, which Wells protested against, rightfully so. It was called Fighters from Mars, or War of the Worlds, in and near Boston. Both of those pirated versions of the story were followed by Edison's Conquest of Mars by Garrett P. Service. Even though these variations are deemed as unauthorized serializations of the novel, it's possible that Wells may have, without realizing it, agreed to the serialization in the uh, New York Evening Journal. The War of the Worlds was generally received very favorably by both readers and critics upon its publication. There was, however, some criticism of the brutal nature of the events in the narrative. Speaking of which, let's jump into Chapter 2, The Falling Star. Then came the night of the first falling star. It was seen in the morning, rushing over Winchester, eastward, a line of flame high in the atmosphere. Hundreds must have seen it, and taken it for an ordinary falling star. Alban described it as leaving a greenish streak behind it that glowed for some seconds. Denning, our greatest authority on meteorites, stated that the height of its first appearance was about 90 or 100 miles. 
It seemed to him that it fell to earth about one hundred miles east of him. I was at home at that hour, and writing in my study, and though my French windows faced towards Ardachon, and the blind was up, for I loved in those days to look up at the night sky, I saw nothing of it. Yet this strangest of all things that ever came to earth from outer space must have fallen while I was sitting there, visible to me had I only looked up as it passed. Some of those who saw its flight say it traveled with a hissing sound. I myself heard nothing of that. Many people in Berkshire, Surrey, and Middlesex must have seen the fall, and at most have thought that another meteorite had descended. No one seemed to have troubled to look for the fallen mass that night. But very early in the morning, poor Ogilvy, who had seen the shooting star but who was persuaded that the meteorite lay somewhere on the common between Horsell, Ottershaw, and Walking, rose early with the idea of finding it. Find it he did, soon after dawn, and not far from the sand pits. An enormous hole had been made by the impact of the projectile and the sand and gravel had been flung violently in every direction over the heath, forming heaps visible a mile and a half away. The heather was on fire eastward, and a thin blue smoke rose against the dawn. The thing itself lay almost entirely buried in the sand, amidst the scattered splinters of a fir tree. It had shivered to fragments in its descent. The uncovered part had the appearance of a huge cylinder, caked over, and its outline softened by a thick, scaly, dun-colored incrustation. It had a diameter of about thirty yards. He approached the mass, surprised at the size, and more so at the shape, since most meteorites are rounded more or less completely. It was, however, still so hot from its flight through the air as to forbid his near approach. A stirring noise within the cylinder he ascribed to the unequal cooling of its surface. For at that time, it had not occurred to him that it might be hollow. He remained standing at the edge of the pit that the thing had made for itself, staring at its strange appearance, astonished chiefly at its unusual shape and color and dimly perceived even then some evidence of design in its arrival. The early morning was wonderfully still, and the sun, just clearing the pine trees towards Weybridge, was already warm. He did not remember hearing any birds that morning. There was certainly no breeze stirring, and the only sounds were the faint movements from within the cindery cylinder. He was all alone on the common. Then suddenly he noticed with a start that some of the gray clinker, the ashy incrustation that covered the meteorite, was falling off the circular edge of the end. It was dropping off in flakes and raining down upon the sand. A large piece suddenly came off and fell with a sharp noise that brought his heart into his mouth. For a minute, he scarcely realized what this meant, and although the heat was excessive, he clambered down into the pit close to the bulk, to
to see the thing more clearly. He fancied even then that the cooling of the body might account for this. But what disturbed that idea was the fact that the ash was falling only from the end of the cylinder. And then he perceived that very slowly the circular top of the cylinder was rotating on its body. It was such a gradual movement that he discovered it only through noticing that a black mark that had been near him five minutes ago was now at the other side of the circumference. Even then he scarcely understood what this indicated until he heard a muffled grating sound and saw the black mark jerk forward an inch or so. Then the thing came upon him in a flash. The cylinder was artificial, hollow, with an end that screwed out. Something within the cylinder was unscrewing the top. Good heavens, said Ogilvy. There's a man in it, men in it, half roasted to death trying to escape. At once, with a quick mental leap, he linked the thing with the flash upon Mars. The thought of the confined creature was so dreadful to him that he forgot the heat and went forward to the cylinder to help turn. But luckily, the dull radiation arrested him before he could burn his hands on the still-glowing metal. At that, he stood irresolute for a moment, then turned, scrambled out of the pit, and set off running wildly into Woking. The time then must have been somewhere about six o'clock. He met a wagoner and tried to make him understand, but the tale he told and his appearance were so wild, his hat had fallen off in the pit, that the man simply drove on. He was equally unsuccessful with the potman, who was just unlocking the doors of the public house by Horsell Bridge. The fellow thought he was a lunatic at large and made an unsuccessful attempt to shut him into the tap. That sobered him a little, and when he saw Henderson, the London journalist, in his garden, he called over the palings and made himself understood. Henderson, he called. You saw that shooting star last night? Well, said Henderson, it's out on the horse common now. Good Lord, said Henderson. Fall a meteorite, that's good. But it's something more than a meteorite. It's a cylinder, an artificial cylinder man. And there's something inside it. Henderson stood up with his spade in his hand. What's that? He said. He was deaf in one ear. Ogilvy told him all that he had seen. Henderson was a minute or so taking it in. Then he dropped his spade, snatched up his jacket, and came out into the road. The two men hurried back at once to the common and found the cylinder still lying in the same position. But now the sounds inside had ceased, and a thin circle of bright metal showed between the top and the body of the cylinder. Air was either entering or escaping at the rim with a thin, sizzling sound. They listened, wrapped on the scaly burnt metal with a stick, and, meeting with no response, they both concluded that man or men inside must be insensible or dead. 
Of course, the two were quite unable to do anything. They shouted consolation and promises and went off back to the town again to get help. One can imagine them, covered with sand, excited and disordered, running up the little street in the bright sunlight just as the shop folk were taking down their shutters and people were opening their bedroom windows. Henderson went into the railway station at once in order to telegraph the news to London. The newspaper articles had prepared men's minds for the reception of the idea. By eight o'clock, a number of boys and unemployed men had already started for the common to see the, quote, dead men from Mars. That was the form the story took. I heard of it first from my newspaper boy about a quarter to nine when I went out to get my daily chronicle. I was naturally startled and lost no time in going out and across the Ottershaw Bridge to the sand pits. There you go. That's the whole chapter. Wells like to keep it short. So join us next time for chapter three on Horsel Common. Find out what's coming out of that cylinder. Is it Cheese Whiz? Is it Mac and Cheese? No, that's more cheese. Perhaps what else comes in a cylinder? Whipped cream. Could it be whipped cream from Mars? Toothpaste, perhaps. A big Martian tube of toothpaste. They're telling us that our breath stinks here on Earth. Could that be it? I don't know. Join us next time for Chapter 3 of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. This is Bart Benny saying thanks for joining me. Come on back to Public Domain Playhouse where we read the works of antiquity today.